Okay. Oh my goodness. I think this is it. I think we're ready to go. All right. Hello there, friends. I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is a little preview episode of what I guess we'll be covering with Read Appalachia, the podcast. I am so very excited that we have finally gotten to this point where we can talk about Appalachian literature in this way. I've been working for the last several months to get everything together so that I can launch the podcast and jump into production. It's it's hard to believe that we're already here. Today, I'm going to be giving you a little preview. I think of this as a little preview episode of the thoughts and the ideas that have been circling around in my mind as I've been preparing to launch the podcast. So to paint a little picture for you, a little bit of radio drama, let me tell you about where I'm sitting. I'm sitting in a small room that I like to call my library, uh, primarily because it's covered with books. Bookshelves line the walls. They're double stacked. It's great for radio. Maybe not so great for my bookshelves. <laughs> but what are you to do when you have that many books? I, I don't know. I am open to ideas. But until then, we have this lovely office. My Corgi Dylan, like the Southern gentleman he is, is quietly and politely sitting on the carpet on his blanket, with his toy, taking a nap while I'm recording. My little hellraiser, Gwenlian, my little Arkansas corgi, she has been banished. Good reason when she's around, she just won't stop talking. So this is probably for the best right now, even if she swears she will be traumatized if she's not let in. You know, I set up my office just like this uh, when we moved up here. Previously, I'd been in a similar room in the South Carolina Low Country. And when we moved, I had everything labeled, ready to go. I knew I needed to get the books up so I could record. So I have all these book boxes everywhere. I feel like I will never see my floor again. And then finally, I get all of these books up and the library looks great My desk is now sitting in front of the window, just like at my previous apartment. But instead of seeing palm trees and oak trees covered in Spanish moss when I look out my window, now I look up and I see the foothills, the trees lining those hills. And and it reminds me that I'm just that much closer to home. I've lived in the South Carolina upstate for most of my adult life now, besides our brief stint down in the beautiful wetlands that is the South Carolina Low Country. So moving back, it's been really like a homecoming in a lot of ways. But like a lot of people, like a lot of Appalachians who have left their home, no matter how long I live here, it'll never quite be the same. There is no home like the one that I grew up in. So that is, I guess, our starting place today. What is home for us as Appalachian people? What does it look like? Why do some of us leave? So today I'll be talking to another Appalachian from my hometown, Amanda Page. And we will be talking about our hometown of Portsmouth, Ohio. 
You know, last spring, I flew back home to the Ohio River Valley, and I landed on that small strip of runway that is the Huntington Airport. If you've flown in there, you know, you know what I'm talking about. The moment the plane touched down, I praised the skies like, oh my goodness, I am here, I am home and alive, wonderful. And even when I texted all those people that you do that, oh, I landed, I'm fine, I'm safe, et cetera, et cetera, you know, one of them responded and he said, I can't wait for you to smell the mountains. Now, any of you who have lived by the sea know that when you are down there on sea level, it is so briny. The air is humid and smells of that salt smell that makes you think instantly, oh, I'm at the beach. But up in the mountains, not only does it take longer for your water to boil, but it's definitely a different vibe, a different scent. Everything is just so completely different. And when I walked off that plane through the terminal, out the doors of the airport, it smelled like home. I was actually visiting home to attend the first ever Appalachian Foothills Festival, which is founded and run by Amanda Page, my guest. Her documentary, Peerless City, made its world premiere at the festival. It follows uh, Portsmouth through two centuries of history and talks about the town's success. It's decline, everything that's going on with it now in the present, even with all of the different things that have gone on in Portsmouth that have been very disheartening in recent years. When I watched the documentary, I could see person after person expressing that they still had hope for their hometown, that Portsmouth could bounce back. I felt like I was seeing this tiny glimpse of what might be possible their hope is this fragile thing, small and delicate, but given the chance, it might have a chance to grow. Of course, my visit ended far too soon, as always, and I had to fly back down to the low country. I got on the plane and I sat and waited for it to taxi to the runway so it could take off. And as it took off, I felt this overwhelming sense of loss. And for me, that is really the moment where I knew in one way or another, I wanted to turn Read Appalachia into a podcast. For many years, I had a different podcast, one that featured books by or about women from all over the world. These women came on the show and shared their stories with me and graciously answered my questions about their work. But after six wonderful seasons, that podcast ended and I decided it was time for a change. I decided it was time to come home. So with Read Appalachia's monthly podcast, I'll be covering different topics like the importance of Appalachian people telling our own stories, both as authors and as the publishing team working behind the scenes. We'll be talking about things like the rich culture of poetry from the region, the role of Appalachian media and journalism, and all things Appalachian cuisine. Yes, please. <laughs> so here's the plan. For the launch of the podcast, we're starting out with three episodes, each one looking at a different question. The first question is, what is Appalachian literature anyway? The second question 
is where does Appalachian literature come from? And the third, what's in store for the future of Appalachian literature? So starting on February 2nd, the first Thursday of the month, we will have the first episode. And every Thursday after that, for the rest of the month, well, for three weeks anyway, we will be having a new episode. We have a week off at the very last part of February, and then we will start our regular schedule of monthly episodes on the first Thursday of every month. Sounds like a plan? I think so. <laughs> okay, so make sure you're subscribed to Read Appalachia on your podcatcher of choice. If you are looking for Read Appalachia and do not see Read Appalachia in your favorite podcatcher, please reach out to me at Kendra at readappalachia.com and I will endeavor to get the a podcast on your podcatcher. I am still working through the hosting as I am recording this, so any help is greatly appreciated. So that is a little housekeeping. Also, I wanted to mention as well that this endeavor, Read Appalachia, the podcast, is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Kendra Winchester. I do not have a, a podcast group or ad network or anything like that. It's just me, my leftover equipment, and the small amount of funds I get from selling merch to create this podcast. So your support is greatly appreciated. And there are several different ways that you can support Read Appalachia, whatever your budget is. Of course, the first thing that you can do is to share Read Appalachia, the podcast, with all of your friends and your on social media, et cetera, et cetera. And that way people can hear about the show. We're a new show. We're going to need a, a lot of help for sure. So anything is appreciated. You can also rate or review us, particularly on uh, Apple Podcasts. That is the primary place where a lot of people get their podcasts, but really rating and reviewing us, uh, preferably favorably, <laughs> on uh, any platform that you use is wonderful. You can also head over to Ko-Fi. I put some like preview tidbits over there and you can tip us as like a $3 thing, or you can be a recurring supporter, whatever your preference. So uh, definitely head over there. And like I mentioned, we do have merch and I also created unique merch for each state that is recognized by the ARC. And we use that, of course, as just a guideline more than an actual rule. But I wanted to make sure you had a lot of options. So you have the regular Read Appalachia t-shirt slash totes and whatever design you want to put it on. You also have like Read Kentucky, Read Ohio, Read North Carolina. All 13 states have their own shirt. And I've tried to think about like the major sports teams to make sure you had that color as well. But we are working through that. Uh, definitely let me know if there's a color that you would like that is not listed. And I will see if I can add it as well. Okay, so that is all of the housekeeping. So let's jump in to our guest today. And I wanted to have a casual chat uh, with someone who shares my love of Appalachian, Ohio. And so today I will be talking with Amanda Page. And if you don't know who Amanda Page is, she is a Columbus-based writer from Portsmouth, like myself. 
Her work appears in Belt Magazine, The Daily Yonder, 100 Days in Appalachia, Literary Hub, and Yes Magazine. She is also the editor of the Columbus Anthology from Belt Publishing and the Ohio State University Press, and the creator of Packard's Columbus, a walking tour of Frank Packard architecture in downtown Columbus, Ohio. Her essay, The Packard Presence in Columbus, Ohio, about developing the tour, is featured in the anthology Midwest Architecture Journeys from Belt Publishing. Paige is also the founding director of Scioto Literary, a nonprofit that supports writers and storytellers in Scioto and surrounding counties in the tri-state region of Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia. So whenever we talk about Appalachia and we meet other Appalachian people, the first question that we ask and that is asked of us is, where are you from? Now, outside of the region, most people have never heard of my hometown of Portsmouth, Ohio. So when I received a DM from Amanda saying that she was also from Portsmouth, I couldn't have been more thrilled to find another creative person from my hometown. So today, I am chatting with her about Portsmouth and what it's like to work on projects about Appalachia that are inspired from where we are both from. So I sat down with her in a very lovely chat and imagine us just sitting over a cup of coffee, chatting about our hometown, and that is definitely the vibe. (laughs) All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Amanda Page. All right, so we are both from Scioto County. We're both from, I guess, different neighborhoods now is how they would describe it, from Portsmouth. But how would you describe Portsmouth if someone asked you what it was like? I mean, I have described it many different ways through the years. I can remember in high school describing it as a ghost, like not a ghost town, but I, I rode the line in high school. I grew up in a ghost And even at that time when there was still a lot more industry and business downtown and just a lot more vibrancy than there is right now in Portsmouth, I saw it as a ghost, as, you know, just a kind of a shadow of what it once was. So can you become more of a ghost through the years? Like it just keeps fading in some way. And yet in another way, it's not because it's got such a, there's such a concentrated amount of effort right now people doing really incredible things there and talent. And I'm just, I mean, it's really hard for me to think about or even try to describe it without comparing it to like 1993 Portsmouth, 2002 Portsmouth and 2022 Portsmouth. Yeah. It's hard to describe without comparing it. I think. I I think so as well. And I think a lot of people, when I tell them I'm from Ohio, uh, they think like Cleveland or Cincinnati Uh, Columbus, you know, uh, at the most. Uh, But trying to describe Appalachian, Ohio, and Portsmouth's situation there has always been really difficult because no one has any mental um, reference points that I can mention, right? I have to like take it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that and all sorts of things. And, you know, I never saw it in books. I never saw it on TV. It was just like I lived in a different country than like a lot of people lived in. Yeah. It's funny because same thing when I would tell people I'm from Ohio, they'd be like, oh, flat. And I'm like, not where I'm from. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And they're talking about, you know, Columbus and north of that. And I I do remember 
I mean, the, the 1989 Life magazine article made a big impression on me. And I was, I keep thinking I was in sixth or seventh. I think I was actually in like the seventh or eighth grade when it came out, that um, Children of Poverty article. And that was really the first time that I thought to think about Portsmouth as like in the larger context, right? And although it was showing, it was telling the story of something that was there in Portsmouth, what I remember really clearly are all the reactions to it, which is like, we're more than that. And we have this, we have that. And it was like, it was telling the story of a family. It was generational poverty, one family um, in one apartment building and how they, you know, were working to make ends meet right across the street from our fancy Ramada Inn that the editor who wrote the story said, wasn't anything to write home about talking about the hotel where we had all our pool parties with it. Um, yeah, I just, that was the first time that, um, I don't want to say that the first time I ever thought that Portsmouth was worth writing about, but it was the first time that I saw it like in print and it made an impression for sure because it was this blatant poverty and I didn't know to think of. So it was a new lens that I hadn't looked at it before. And it's interesting you mentioned you hadn't thought of it as Appalachian. When did you first realize that Ohio is part of Appalachia, which new people seem to be discovering every day. (laughs) That's a good question. I want to say it was sometime in college. I wanted to go, I ended up going to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, which is, you know, Southeastern Ohio, which is considered Appalachia. Like they have embraced that identity. And I want to say it might've been, I started to have an awareness at that time, but not anything that I could really articulate. I was just like, I don't want to go somewhere that's like, home you know I wanted to experience something different and new and um and I it it felt very much similar to where we're from and beyond that I think that it was probably I was I was definitely in my late 20s when I started thinking of it as Appalachian and I can't even remember like the catalyst or the reason besides wait I can go back to one identifying feature I was trying to explain to somebody some aggravating like mindset thing <laughs> from Portsmouth and they're like that's Appalachian and I was like what it, it, it made me start thinking about like some of the characteristics of the culture like mindset and certain traditions and some of that is like you know don't get above your raisin and um, that kind of stuff so that was probably in grad school in the early two early 2000s that I started to really think of it that way what about you I think it was 20 I say 2014 I was researching something for a piece I was writing for after my grandfather died when I was 19. So a few years later, I wrote a piece that I took to a, a writing conference and I was researching the area and I came across the Appalachian Regional Commission. So I always thought that Appalachia was West Virginia. In my mind, when we cross, because we live in the tri-state area, right, for folks who don't know. So I would always go to camp, you know, over in West Virginia. I would go over to Beckley and every, every year. And everything there was Appalachian this, Appalachian that, like there's so many. So I felt like it was a misrepresentation if I said Appalachian, because that's, that's West Virginia. But when I saw the ARC, and my dad is from Eastern Kentucky. So like, seeing his county, seeing my county and my grandparents county, which is uh, Ross County, seeing all of those in Appalachia, it clicked. And I was like, I called my mom and I was like, oh my word, mom, dad's family's Appalachian. I'm Appalachian. What is going on? <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean? I, yeah, my dad's from West Virginia too. And um, yeah, I spent a lot of time in Huntington in my um, late teens. So I, we're close enough 
to really be in that kind of like like central hub of Appalachia since West Virginia is the only state that is fully in the uh, region, but also just far enough outside of it that we get forgotten about constantly. Yeah. I remember um, writing that piece. I took it to this thing and it was about my grandfather, who's a woodsman. He's been in on Higby Road in Ross County. His family's been there since 1700s or something. <laughs> And I'm just like, I took it there and I was like, my grandfather's a woodsman. And they thought that was interesting. And I thought it was very boring and very common. I'm like, my uncle Ellsworth has a cabin and so does my grandfather. They live in cabins. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) They're just like, this is weird. And so I began researching it. And then I found Dreamland by Sam Quinones. And I saw the cover. That cover. The Virginia Military District. Yeah. Yeah. This was so, it was so strange because you never see... Portsmouth anywhere. And then to see it in this book about the opioid crisis as a disabled person who grew up in the same area where all these pill mills were. So like we grew up here and I was like, this is the most random thing to see first. And that really began the process of me trying to like work through like being from Appalachian, Ohio, and no one really knowing what that means, including people from Appalachian, Ohio. Oh, yeah, there are people in Portsmouth who don't want that identity because it means poverty, scarce resources, um, hillbilly. And I I understand that. I mean, that's the same reason that, you know, we encourage people to look beyond the stereotypes, right? I can remember in the late 90s and early 2000s, I go to college or grad school and I come home and every time I come home, someone else had died. Another building had been torn down. I mean, it was just like, what is happening to this place? And then Sam's book came out. And I was like, oh, is this what's happening to this place? It gave me a framework to, or a lens. It gave me a lens to start looking at Portsmouth through. Still don't think it's the full picture. So I, I just kept seeing things cycle through. I can remember when Walmart came and how how many businesses almost immediately closed down after. And, and so it felt like kind of a perfect storm there for a minute. Exaggerated or exasperated maybe by the opioid epidemic. You know, I want to go back real quick because I was just thinking about um, when the Appalachian identity really started to reveal itself to me. And it it was that last year in college, too, at Ohio University. I had a mentor. She taught the creative nonfiction workshop. And her name was Ann Qualls. She was from Ashland, Kentucky. And she had stacks of books. Like, some of it was Southern. Uh, she, she was really um, exploring her Southern identity. But like she had that book back talk from Appalachia and um, and more people were saying Appalachia at that time, too. I just want to plug that. But but those she had those books and she was exploring that identity. So it helped me. I did not have the language for it at the time because I still I was going to go to University of Alabama for graduate school, like kind of thinking about that Southern identity. Also, because of our city slogan, you know, the slogan for Portsmouth is where Southern hospitality begins. So I was thinking at least regionally without really having the language to say regional culture and Appalachia. I think it's really interesting when we talk about identity with Appalachia because it is vertical, right? And you inherently have more than one identity as an Appalachian unless you're like in the smack dab middle, right? So you can be Southern and Appalachian. You can be Midwestern in Appalachian. You can be Northern in Appalachian. And that's one of the things I love about Appalachia is that there's no singular one. There's no singular Appalachia. There's all these different parts of it that come together to make 
this full and rich region that pulls from so many different things. And that's what I love about it versus, you know, I love the South. This is my home. But like, there's there's so much rich culture in Appalachia that you can appreciate and celebrate. Like, I've never been to Pittsburgh, but there's so many great writers from Pittsburgh. Of course, I want to talk about them. And we claim them as our own. You know, that's just that's how it rolls. And that's something I really enjoy about I guess the region. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, mean writers, writers from, from the, the Paris, Paris of Appalachia, Appalachia they, they call it. it. Yeah, yeah I've heard Pittsburgh. kids call that before. I, <laughs> uh, I do really love that too, the nuance and kind of the complicated nest of an Appalachian identity. It's messy. I love that. Uh, I was talking to someone from Youngstown the other day and I asked, you know, how much do you identify as an Appalachian? And they were like, not at all. I'm from Youngstown. And I'm like, well, you know, you're on the map. Um, but I don't think that, you know, there are parts of Appalachia that are on the map that I don't know, have a different perspective on it, I guess, but I'm happy to introduce them. That's what I was like, well, get used to it. <laughs> so we've talked about like when we realized that Appalachian Ohio, like was part of Appalachia and we both went away for school and we both now have projects about or around the region. So when did you kind of, I guess, hear the siren call of Portsmouth and wanted to make or create um, just different things ab- about Portsmouth? Oh, my God. Kendra, Portsmouth is my oldest muse. Like, <laughs> I mean, I have a poem that I wrote at 16, the first one I ever read in public that literally describes Portsmouth. Like, it's about Portsmouth. And when I applied to graduate school, I applied with a couple stories from, um, well, a, a pretend collection. I said I was writing this collection um, about Southern Ohio. Um, and I referred to it as, um, or and thinking that I was going to write about like one street in Southern Ohio, like Winsome Way, I wanted to call it. And even when I was writing my uh, mission statement for um, grad school, it was about like, I wanted to investigate what it was like to live in the South and compare it to you know, growing up in Southern Ohio. So I think it was probably there since maybe the, that article. I've read, I read a lot of magazines in high school. Like I had a lot of magazine subscriptions. It was pre-internet people, so um, don't judge. But um, <laughs> so when I started writing, I think that it, it just kind of, it's what I knew. It's what inspired me. And I think too, like, was I interested in place because I'm from Portsmouth or... Is it just convenient? Like I, I was always one, I was always interested in place, and I think that has to be because I grew up in this place that I had to constantly question, like, what is this place? And then coming across the Appalachian identity, it's like, well, there's one answer: it's Appalachian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt like once I realized it was it was Appalachian, I feel like that really began drawing me back a lot more. And I think when my grandfather passed away, like that really made me realize like all the questions. And I was 19, so clueless as always. You don't think about these big picture like questions when you're 19 typically. And that really made me start thinking about the region and wanting to know more. It's home and there's so much there that I think people miss. And so I began like researching and I am... I mean, the good thing about being neurodivergent in my case is I have a superpower where I can research something into the ground and learn everything. And that's really where it started, I think. And it was just a very big time for Appalachia, I think, in 2015 and 16. 
Yeah. When did when did the book come out? Sixteen. Sixteen. Seven yeah. Sixteen. That, yeah, I think that um, a a light was cast, a spotlight was cast on the region at the time. I think in some ways it created an opportunity. I mean, I know there are you know plenty of people talking about how we're not that, and I think that it's a, a rare time where we can start to forge what we are. Like we have not because it's so nuanced and because it's so large and because there are so many different pieces to it. It's really hard to like just off the top of your head, come up with a list of what are the Appalachian characteristics. But since that book came out, no matter how problematic it is, it did open up the opportunity for us to all start talking to one another. Yeah. And it did inspire a lot of great Appalachian work, whether that's online writing, anthologies, documentaries, like there was a lot of great content. I don't think would have had the funding or initiate like the the push to get it to be able to be published without it and that is like a a tension right that's like a paradox in Appalachian art almost in the different fields which I think is really interesting I found I found my first review of Hillbillyology which is embarrassing and I'm never going to publish it ever I deleted it (laughs) off the face of the planet but I could tell I was working through not liking him and his experience but also being like can I write off one person's story like what is happening so I began researching it and I found all uh, so many great opinion pieces about it that were like this is terrible yeah and I was like okay and that was that was helpful but it was like reflecting my own internal like struggle of like what does it mean to be Appalachian now in my case so yeah I wonder if that tension has been there for a long time, I'm just thinking about, and I have not read this book, but um, the book uh, Night Comes to the Cumberlands, is that what it? I know which one you're talking about. I haven't read it though. Yeah. I think I definitely got this from the Trillbillies podcast <laughs> about how, um, you know, when he published that book, there was a lot of pushback too, because it was, it was this, you know, privileged guy talking about the poverty in the region I wonder if that tension has always existed with different books that have been kind of designated, not by Appalachians, but by, you know, the the big house publishers. This is what Appalachia is. And then Appalachians have to be like, well, you've done it again. You've extracted stories from us. And yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's something that with Read Appalachia is really important to me is that these big na- the, the big five, for folks who don't know, the big five are just the biggest five publishing companies and they publish the majority of books out there. And so when they publish a book about Appalachia, I am more skeptical than anything else. Unless I've read the author before and I know who they are, I am 100% very skeptical. And that's just because mm-hmm. of what you said. Like so many of these publishers will pick the book because it it's like a confirmation bias. Like it just confirms what they already believe about the region. And so they're just perpetuating all of these stereotypes. I just <laughs> want to grab the shoulders and yeah. shake them like, please, please stop. <laughs> Grr, stop. Grr. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, we've talked a little bit about just in our chats over like virtual coffee is like the importance of 
Appalachian people telling our own stories. Like it's important that regional indie and university presses, you know, they're doing great work publishing Appalachian stories. Um, you've edited an anthology on Columbus and work with Belt Publishing, who I adore. What's that been like for you um, through all of this, I guess, tumultuous time of Appalachia kind of rising to the forefront again? I mean, I think it's that same, like there's an opportunity here to in a market, I guess, to tell these stories and to have these stories told within. Um, you know, there are more publications like Bell, like 100 Days in Appalachia, The Daily Yonder, who are publishing these types of stories now. You can identify now, like, who wants these stories, who reads these stories. And I think that's been really interesting. Um, I just to, just to kind of... I'm sorry, that's my dog playing with a toy in the background. Um, <laughs> Just to think about why I'm excited that there are more outlets to tell um, our own stories is just, I just the other day read, um, there's a piece in The Guardian right now about how the number of um, creatives and artists from the working class has decreased uh, over the last 20 years. And I say this all the time with like um, newspaper, like big newspaper publishers um, and editors, you know, it's usually people from a certain demographic who could go to the unpaid internships and do, um, you know, have help living in the big city and um, not always, but often. And that's one perspective. It's just one perspective and it's, it proliferates the, the industry. So what stories are getting told? You know, I mean, a lot of times stories are pitched and accepted by an editor and then shaped by that editor. And if everyone is, from a similar class background or from a similar, like, I mean, classes have their own kind of insular culture too, right? I mean, that's another component to this. So if media is getting shaped, because that's one of the things that the Guardian article talked about, it was like if, if people, if the artists are from a certain class background and the people making calling the shots and ordering the shows are from the same class background, what perspective is getting getting made? So I, I think that's part of why it's important for us to tell our stories and encourage other people from Appalachia across class backgrounds to tell their stories. That perspective is important and we need to elevate it as much as we can. We need to get it in the hands of the the people who are making the decisions and say, this is important. You don't get to reject it because it wasn't your experience. Yeah, and it's interesting to see to see that. And I, I feel like a lot of the mainstream folks outside the region, they want to take a singular story and they want to like put it on this pedestal, as we've seen with that book. And they want to say, this is the experience. And and it's like, no, like there's so many other stories. Yes, you could tell this on its own. And if it was published on its own, it's fine, whatever. But like, this is the only thing, like one of three options of different things. So I just, when I think about that, I think that's really what's driven me to want to work with books in the region is being like, okay, no, there are more. There are so many more. Endless numbers. Yeah. And I think you speak to something really important too, uh, that, um, you know, a lot of times when um, like a publishing house, when they have a hit, they want to repeat that, right? Yes. Just for financial purposes like this works let's do it again and again and again and it does get to the point where sometimes I'm like god I just want a new story um not that there's not I mean there are a lot of really great stories out there a lot of times you know they're smaller presses 
and harder to find don't have the marketing dollars behind it to to get it in more hands so or in front of more eyes so yeah <laughs> just I, I want I guess um, access or not even access I have access awareness that's it I want help being aware of those stories so we've talked a little bit about stories and about who gets to tell stories and how we were both drawn back to Portsmouth and how that really inspired our work promoting different projects. Uh, Your, I guess, biggest, most recent project is Peerless City, the documentary. You have so many different ideas and you love to do so many things. How did you decide that this was the project, this was the next project that you wanted to do? That's a great question. I have several. I guess I'll start with that. Um, you know, I was 16 in Portsmouth and I was downtown a lot. And it was the first time I noticed that where Southern Hospitality Begins was on a lot of signage. It made me start thinking regionally, like, how are we Southern? I mean, I know Kentucky's right there, you know. So I started thinking about that. And then, like I said, it took me to Alabama. Um, I didn't really have enough awareness or even language for it at the time. But in hindsight, I can see what I was trying to kind of work out. And that's I've probably started five different essays through the years, maybe 15, um, about where Southern Hospitality begins, and I have failed to finish any of them. So then I saw, during the pandemic, I saw Moundsville on PBS, and it was just such a poignant depiction of a place. Um, I started talking about it on Twitter, met the guys on Twitter, um, and then when they helped me become a filmmaker myself. And so I had said to them, I said, now let's do it for Portsmouth. So when it came time, I was aware of some grants available because I have been volunteering in the art space for a long time. And um, when it came time to start writing the grants, I learned how to like write a script treatment and it just kind of fell into place. Like I knew I wanted to do something with where Southern hospitality begins. So I knew I wanted to do something with the city slogans. And I had been keeping an eye on what was happening with this slogan, Comeback City, or nickname. They, uh, there was a small group of guys in Portsmouth starting to refer to Portsmouth as Comeback City. So I had those two. And then my little brother um, had told me years ago that um, an old nickname for Portsmouth was Peerless City. And he had some photos of different businesses in town. Peerless City Motor Company, Peerless City Skating Rink. Um, so we started looking at that too. And then it just kind of fell together. I was like, well, I have three slogans here I want to look at. Films are three acts, right? So... <laughs> And then just, um, yeah, just kind of wrote the treatment toward that. It worked, right? Like it it gave people, like some people that I talked to didn't know about Peerless City as a slogan or, but people like to talk about where they're from. And I always make the joke that people from Portsmouth are obsessed with Portsmouth because I think we're all really trying to figure out what is this place? I can remember at 17 pulling my car over and being like, why was I born here? I was looking up at the hospital, still trying to answer that question, but uh Definitely just thinking thinking always through the lens of the city, um, everywhere I go. Every neighborhood I've lived in since I left Portsmouth has been an attempt to recreate 1991 New Boston. <laughs> 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 so, it was so walkable. I'll talk about a 15-minute city. Um, yeah. And it was really lovely when, after period of city re- premiered uh, at Shawnee and everyone's sitting in the auditorium and it closes and you got such a wonderful reception and it was so lovely to see honestly 
it was just so heartwarming to see how much they were just so proud of you for what you've done. And it was a beautiful film. I felt like I learned so much about Portsmouth. I had no idea, like most of that information. And I, you know, lived there my entire, you know, little life until I moved away for college. So yeah, it was a good, it was a beautiful moment. Thank you. It was, it was really probably top five of my life. I think like I, I, I could not have imagined. Yeah. The people who were there and um, the response to it and yeah, it was a problem. Well, for sure. She agrees. Yes, she does agree. <laughs> she agrees. <laughs> so in interviews, I always like to ask the person I'm interviewing if there's something that they would like to say or something they would like to communicate that they haven't talked about already. And when I asked Amanda this, I think she really spoke to something that a lot of us who are from Appalachia, but from maybe outer reaches or maybe just unknown pockets of Appalachia really worry about. And that is that our particular part of Appalachia is being left out of larger conversations about the region. Well, I, w- I would say, I think that especially our part of Ohio, Southern Ohio gets left out a lot. And I mean, the best Christmas, or is it the best or worst Christmas pageant ever? Um, you know that book, right? Like the, it's one of the most famous Christmas stories. She's from Portsmouth. Like, um, it's so funny the number of people who are from Portsmouth or have a connection to Portsmouth. Um, I just don't want it to get left out, you know, especially I think this moment we have an opportunity to focus on it as part of Appalachia. Um, and I don't want Southeastern Ohio to get all the glory. <laughs> um, I think that we have so much talent there. We just have to shine a spotlight on it. And I think that things like your project where you're really shining a spotlight on literature of the region can only help and amplify voices that are telling their own stories. And I'm really excited about that. It's unifying in a way, like in terms of like defining a regional culture. And I think that the more people who contribute to that definition, just the richer and the more complex and the more nuanced and the more interesting and the more inclusive that culture can be. And of course, this is Read Appalachia, so I couldn't let her go without talking about books. What is some of your favorite Appalachian literature? Oh, well, I'm going to turn here and look at my uh, collection. It's funny when you're saying, um, like, you have to fight to live here. I was thinking about this book, and her name is Wilkinson, um, Jessica Wilkinson. And um, to live here, you have to fight. And it was about... um, it's about the people like activism and uh, union work and um, just fighting for, you know, clean water and that sort of thing. And so I really loved that book, Lost Mountain by Eric Reese that talks about mountaintop removal. I was teaching briefly at Western Kentucky University and uh, that was the common book for the year. And we read it and we discussed it and, um, I had a student in a punk band write a song about it, about mountaintop removal, slurry ponds. And uh, so that will always be um, be close to my heart. And I will be remiss if I do not mention um, Stay and Fight by Madeline Fitch, set in southeastern Ohio. Again, the word fight comes up. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, I love that novel. That's a novel. It's fiction. And it's just, I think it captures a spirit of the place. So, Isn't Amanda so lovely? She has my never-ending gratitude for coming on the show and supporting me as I've geared up to launch this podcast. So please go check out all of her social media and keep out an eye uh, for where you can watch her documentary, Peerless City. All of that information will, of course, be in our show notes, including all of the books that we've mentioned today in our conversation. So that's it for today. So stay tuned for Read Appalachia's official, air quotes, very first episode, which goes live on February 2nd, which hopefully you will be able to find wherever you get your podcasts. Again, message me if you can't find it on your favorite podcatcher. Meanwhile, you can find Read Appalachia on our website, readappalachia.com or on social media at all platforms at Read Appalachia. All right. Talk to you next time, friends.